Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Woodcut Media's Kate Beale, Synchronicity Films' Claire Mandel and Navision's Anne Morrison about their experiences as women working in TV, how the industry's changed and the ways in which it still needs to. And from Back to the Future star Leah Thompson about her career as an actor and director and stepping back in front of the camera for new series The Spencer Sisters. International Women's Day took place earlier this week, shining a spotlight on women's rights, equality, abuse and other issues, as well as celebrating female achievement and continuing the campaign against discrimination. The case of Harvey Weinstein and other high-profile figures within the world of entertainment has meant the international film and TV business has had to face uncomfortable truths within recent years, while the introduction of intimacy coordinators on set has represented welcome progress. But both in front of and behind the camera, challenges remain, and the broader cultural context of online misogyny and horrific real-world assaults highlight the need to keep the conversation going. Woodcut Media Chief Executive Kate Beale, Synchronicity Films Founder and Creative Director Claire Mundell, and Navision Chief Executive and Creative Director Anne Morrison spoke to Carolina Kaminska about their experiences within the industry, how it's changed and what still needs to. Kate, Claire and Anne, happy International Women's Day. Thank you. Really, really glad to have you join us. Um, Now, between you and individually as well, you have extensive experience of working in the TV industry. And I'm sure that a lot will have changed since you started your careers, particularly as women. So maybe you can share your experiences of first starting out in the sector and what barriers you faced as women. Sure. Shall I kick off? I mean, I joined in the 1980s and it was a very different world. You know, every so often we kind of think, oh gosh, are we making any progress at all? But when I think back to those times, it actually does make me realise how far we've come because the industry that I joined then was one in which people would tell sexist and racist jokes and expect you to laugh along. Uh, And you were pretty humorless if you didn't. Um, They were days in which, you know, there was kind of casual sexual harassment and so on. And when I was starting out as a director, um, the rather sort of grumpy crews who weren't impressed by having a um, kind of young female director would kind of say to me, you know, where do you want the tripod love? Um, And so it was pretty, it was pretty discouraging. I mean, when I, I think now we've come a long way, people wouldn't tell sexist jokes anymore in the same way. I think um, men would be a lot savvier, but sometimes I think that the actual attitude haven't necessarily changed as much as we like to think that but they've gone underground which makes Mm. them harder to spot so they were more alert in the 80s um and they're more covert now but i think some of the fundamental problems remain so i started in the 90s and um it is a very different world to how it was then but i don't think it was necessarily as obvious it was more implicit i think things like the sexual the casual sexual harassment was definitely prevalent and And I don't think at the time I understood what was and what wasn't acceptable because we hadn't had those conversations. And I think that's a fundamental thing is we weren't really talking about it as much. However, I do think it is really important to say that I was born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s. And in the UK, in the 1980s, we had a queen, we had a female prime minister, and we had really bold, strong women on TV, like somebody like Esther Ranson. So actually, I was also a a child of a single mum. I grew up in a very female dominated world. I grew up in a a world where women were in powerful positions. Um, So my expectations uh, when I entered my career was, well, obviously I can achieve anything. I can be prime minister. Um, So I didn't have that immediate, I suppose, anxiety or imposter syndrome or all of those sorts of things that we talk about. Because actually my role models and my role models being my mum, the prime minister, Esther Ranson, the queen, were all brilliant, strong, powerful women doing their thing. Um, so although there were barriers, I didn't necessarily always see them because I had this 
this faith that I could rule the world. Um, now we talk about it, you think, oh yeah, oh no, no, oh that's not good. And actually now you sort of delve deeper and think, oh actually, well, what about the money? Who owns it? Where's the money from? Those kind of questions as you grow up um, and as you become more experienced, mm. you ask. But actually as starting out, I had a naive bullishness about me, I suppose. Well, for my part, I, uh, yeah, I similarly grew up in the same period and I have never thought about that before, actually, but I guess I had a number of female role models as well. I mean, Thatcher was around at the time. She wasn't my role model, but um, <laughs> but yes, in terms of seeing other women, I mean, I think I think who you work with as a young person and a young woman is a critical thing. And I was lucky to have a couple of um, very excellent young female bosses and I learned from them, I guess. I, I may have been very lucky in the sense that I, I have encountered casual sexism, but I've never ever felt that I've been held back particularly other than on a couple of uh, small occasions so I've, I feel like I've been relatively unscathed by sexism in the workplace to be honest but it may just be that I'm, uh, I've got, I'm more immune to it than I thought I was you know and it was around me but I think female role models as bosses they were the women that showed me that it was possible you know Liz Scott who Anne knows um, was an amazing boss I, that I had when I was a young woman and she you know she was the prime example of that you know you have to see it to be it and there weren't there weren't masses of women in senior leadership in the BBC in Scotland in those days but she was one of them and I admired how she handled herself and the way that she encouraged those underneath her and I think that's such a critical thing you know so for me that was uh, she wasn't the only person but she just stands out because she was such a strong mentor it's interesting just picking up on that because um thinking back to some of the women that I worked with early on there was um one woman that I I remember really looking up to she was in charge of a big series I was going to be a researcher on it and I remember suggesting that in terms of a presenter that maybe we could have a woman and she who was in charge of many series was you know had a had a lot of authority under her was saying I just don't think a woman would have enough authority. And I remember thinking, wow, gosh, but you're a woman in authority. Why do you mm. think that? <laughs> and it really took me aback. I remember it vividly. So, you know, you sort of think the the compromises that some of those women had had to make in order to get on. Um, feminism wasn't around in the way that it is now. And I think it really disadvantaged them. Uh, when I think of some of the women, you know, they had a reputation of being quite scary. They often um, had married the job, you know, they didn't have a partner, they didn't have children, they were absolutely dedicated to, to the job. And, and thinking of, you know, we talked about Margaret Thatcher, there was a bit of the Thatcher syndrome that they were going to be harder than any man and tougher than any man. And they were sometimes quite intimidating to work for. But um, when I think back to those women now, I actually think we owe them a debt of gratitude because it's really, really tough being a pioneer and mm. it takes a psychological toll on you. And they made it easier for my generation to come along and hopefully my generation make it that much easier for the generation below and so on down, you know, because I think it is in in some ways, you know, there were more obstacles for that generation of women than there certainly have been since. Mm. I think that's the thing. They're, they're lionesses. They were, you know, they really did forge the way. And I think you're right that, you know, again, hearing Claire talk about her role models and who her female bosses were, actually, I think um, you know, I had great female bosses at the beginning. And I remember distinctly on one of my first jobs, I was sort of introduced to a producer director who I was working to. And I was told by the, the bigger female boss, this is your mentor. This is who you're going to, you know, this is your person. So giving that kind of idea of mentorship and female mentorship from an early stage in my career um, I, I felt very fortunate at, at that mm. and again you know I can name those amazing women in the 90s who were continuing that pioneering and they were tough and they were hard and they did have shoulder pads from the 80s still hung, mm -hmm. hanging over um, but I think they needed that you're right because that was the expectation but interestingly I, I think also something you know, I, I talk about my mum a lot you know she was a, a woman in television in a managerial role but she was proudly a single parent and pr proudly a mum and so there were women like her who were saying you know I don't have to marry the job I'm also you know mm. uh, uh, this is this is who I am and and mm. so never hid me or never um, put me in the corner as it were because that's who made her the mm. best that she could be in her role 
Yeah, I think, I mean, similarly, my 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 mum, I didn't have any family who worked in television or, or even the arts in any way, you know, came from a, a working class family. And um, but what I did have in my mother was a very strong a work ethic and someone who I think really encouraged me to be able to sort of traverse, you know, whatever scenarios were presented to me. So even even though I, I mean, I, I remember once when I was married um, for the first time, uh, <laughs> in an interview being asked by someone I was interviewing for a researcher's job and uh, the interview went very well I thought well, I think I've got this job and then the last question that he asked me was uh, he said I can see you've got a, a, a ring a wedding ring on and I said yeah that's right I'm married he said so mm, well the thing is this is a freelance you know this is like a, a, an eight month contract so uh, I'm just saying you know like I you know I think he actually said are you going to have children I think he said it out loud and it was back in the gosh when was it it was in the early 90s and I think I laughed and I just sort of said well I don't really think that's any of your business but probably not in the duration of the next contract no and then I I remember also <laughs> and I really no names no court cases but I, I also remember uh during my time a very well-known broadcaster there was a there was a, a sort of scenario where when one had to go and get your um annual appraisal to determine what your well if you were going to get a salary increase or not that you had to go and sort of sweet talk a certain person and and, and have a conversation that was like now when you think back on it you think well why on earth did I endure that but we all did things like that at that time, you know, which is why I feel for, you know, young women today, it's like such a, hopefully, it's such a better environment and a more level playing field, for want of a better expression. But you're right, I mean, the women who have gone before and and us, are, you know, as, as, as our generation, we are doing that hopefully for the women who follow us. But I think the role model that you have within your family situation is also really critical. Um, and, and I think we all have that in common because I'm lucky enough to have a mother who you know kind of believes I can do anything in life no matter how crazy that might be so that kind of unconditional kind of belief I think is is very critical and it, and it can lead on if you're not lucky enough to have that kind of a family background then I think also mentoring uh, as you mm. mentioned is is critical that somebody that believes in you and in your career that you feel is kind of on your side and can give you sometimes the tough love you know um mm. doesn't mean agreeing with you all the time but it can mean challenge you or um, saying, yeah, I think you can do this. Um, and I always enjoyed being that person as well, running mm. big departments of the BBC. As, you know, I, I, I was I started out as a uh, producer director and, and I never I, I sort of felt I'm going to be an OK director. I'm never going to be an amazing director. But the thing that gave me joy was when I would pick somebody who I could see had that talent and I'd give them directing and they would flourish and do ever so much better than I ever imagined. And the, the pleasure and pride that I take in that actually give me more pride than if I'd done it myself. So when I kind of realised, actually, I'm more, better in a kind of managerial leadership role, helping other people do their best work. And that was then what led me on to do that at the BBC. And while things will have improved for, for women working in TV uh, over the years, there are still many areas where women are are underrepresented. So, you know, what are these areas and, and what would it take to make these areas more more equal? So the, one of the most obvious places that women are underrepresented in television is the post-production area. Um, female editors, female dubbers, that kind of technical end piece of production um, I think has a long way to go because it is a very, it's always naturally been a very kind of male t-shirt, men in black t-shirts um, territory. Um, I do think that is changing, but I do think it is, it's not as spoken about as much um, mm. you know, in, in the way that production managers are always seen to be female, editors are always assumed to be a man. And I think mm. there is a really kind of rooted kind of belief in that, which does need to change. Mm. I mean, there's definitely a pattern in, in production and drama and particular where the production office tends to you know it's like the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that it tends to be populated by very good organized you know hard-working women and it could be 
be hard to change that culture because then that is what other people see and therefore that's what um, is sort of encouraged as a, as a way into you, you know the industry but I think yeah post-production definitely um, accountancy to some degree in production accountants D- directing drama is still very much you know the percentages are still very small and I think that you know you only have to look at the sort of um, the, the sort of award season and look at the preponderance of of male directors and to, to know that there's not an awful lot of change there you know that's a slow process yeah I think it's that's really true and and I mean we've been talking about the start of our careers I think if you'd asked me back then I'd have thought we'd have made more progress by now than we actually have and you know the fact that I think there's this you know the, the the celluloid ceiling report which looks at the top 250 grossing films um uh, annually and analyzes them and um in 2022 women were 7% of cinematographers, 19% of writers, 21% of editors. And that's hardly budged from, you know, 1998 when they started doing this. So um, actually, we we have the illusion sometimes of progress. And I think certainly the conversation is a bit more informed. Um, People are a bit more aware of these issues. But in terms of actual, you know, change on the ground, I think it's it's a bit scarce. And I always think of, you know, the words of um, Elvis Presley, we need a little less conversation, a little more action, um, you know, because it's the action that sometimes is is lacking. But I do think that in terms of, well, what can one do about it? You know, it's, there's um, evidence that if there's a female director, uh, then more of the crew tend to be female. If there's a female writer, there will be um, 10, you know, 10 to be um better, stronger female characters. You know, you look at Sally Wainwright and Happy Valley and, you know, we've all been, you know, um, captured by Sarah Lancashire, you know, who's coming up to retirement and so on, because you also get the sort of ageism that can come in for a representation of women as well, which can be an mm. issue um, in drama particularly. So I think when you do get more women behind the scenes, it's not a magic bullet, but it over time, it tends to be that you get um, more roles, better roles for women and more balanced female crew. I think it kind of plays into a bigger issue, which is our industry isn't very well set up for women, full stop, in terms of how we operate our lives. You know, there are shortcuts and there are routes that we take, I, you know, in terms of in the factual world, if you want to have a baby and you're in your mid-30s and you're doing okay, well, then you become an edit producer because the industry isn't set up for you to go out filming because there's a whole mm. insecurity about short-term contracts and finances. And there's a reality that if you're going from three-month job to three-month job, to three month job you can't necessarily do the life things that you want to do i.e have a family perhaps take your child to school go to the nativity play Um, and so as an industry because we're so insecure in our freelance world it's it's not an attractive place for some women to be and you have to have a sort of certain mindset if you're going to get to your mid-30s and onwards and still work in a freelance television industry and in a kind of camera director editing role rather than let's go for the the slightly more reliable safer option of production management um it's just you know we're fundamentally kind of structurally um not set up to promote and help women when they get to a certain age. I completely agree with that. And it's one of the reasons when young women ask me for career advice that I very often say to them, you know, choose your partner, your life partner with care, uh, mm. because I think it's not often talked about, but having a support system, and obviously it can come from an extended family, it can come from all sorts of different ways. But um, if you do want to, you know, be have a senior career in television, but also have children, then you need as much creativity off the screen as on really just in terms of thinking out your family family uh, situation and it is a it is a huge challenge it disappoints me that you know there aren't more men who are taking on those caring responsibilities um it's what happened in in our family um and enabled me to carry on with my career as the um sole breadwinner with my husband um bringing up our daughter and you know looking after the house and and actually, I discovered quite a few senior women have that arrangement, but um, it's not so often talked about and it's not nearly 
as common as I think it it sh- could and should be. I think so. I think the other thing is that you know women often it's often assumed within the family unit that women will be the primary carer. You know, even if it isn't caring for family, it's caring for you know other members of the family, and you know that is difficult as well for uh, the sorts of hours that are expected in the sort of unpredictability of a career in in television and film, whether or not you know you're running your own business or you're freelance or whatever. So yeah, it's a it's a long term evolutionary thing that has moved on since since I started out, but I I, I don't think it can it can't uh, move on too far, can it? Or far enough? Think, actually, that's what I meant to say. I think one positive, just to jump in, is I think COVID has had an, a positive impact actually on the setups. I've noticed very much more that you know, the men in crude terms were forced to look after their children during lockdown. And so actually that has continued a little bit more. And I've noticed, I, I don't know if it's just particularly the company, yeah, my company, but the men do seem to be taking on more childcare responsibilities. You know, Like you, I'm very lucky that I have a supportive husband who will kind of do everything when I have to work, which is is a, a choosing your partner wisely is, is very good advice. But I do think there has been a slight sea change just generally in the male-female balance of childcare and caring responsibilities because of our COVID time. And I think you know, the, the, the door has been opened a bit and we just need to make sure it doesn't revert back. But in terms of advice, I give women in, you know, who, who I mentor in my company in their 20s, I tell them to start saving for when they have a baby. You know, if, you, if you're thinking of doing it in your 30s, you need to be saving now because you're not going to get maternity pay at most companies. You're going to have to have a period where you probably can't work because it's unachievable. You need to start, you know, start your savings pot now for that time. And you can't rely that the industry is going to look after you because it's not. I certainly think COVID has made people think hard about, you know, the need for flexibility the fact that um, we can do so many things remotely that you know how how often do we need to be in the office that uh, somebody some companies have gone back fully to the office but others are doing more of a hybrid model and I think that can often suit women very well so I think there have been some good legacies of it uh tough though it was for many people and particularly women but I think you know if if companies want to keep their good women I think they need to think hard about you know how they accommodate those types times in their lives. So it won't be forever. But, you know, when children are small, um, when there are sort of aged parents uh, caring and so on that that need to happen. And, you know, you hang on to great people by just being uh, a bit flexible, really, about how you uh, whether you insist they come into the office every day. That sort of thing can make a critical difference. Yeah, I think in nations and regions as well, that's possibly more pronounced because we're often growing people and investing in people over a long period of time in a very specialised area and a competitive area so in our company you know we our head of development is on maternity leave now and will come back in April and we wouldn't dream of not offering maternity pay for anyone who is a long-term investment in terms of our company and and we're further motivated to do that because you know we need skilled people on the ground around us and therefore you know I think it's quite shocking sometimes to think that that isn't available necessarily to everybody depending on what company you're working for but you know I think also during lockdown we adjusted the way we worked and I think if the work is done does it matter what the hours are so long as the work is done I think physical production is a different it's a different challenge because it is what it is particularly in drama production and you know it's very hard to make that family friendly and balance out the needs of demanding schedules financiers requirements broadcasters requirements I mean I often feel like producers and production companies are the, the you know the responsibility for managing so many different things is now passed to us and yet when push really does come to shove the broadcaster still wants their project delivered on time on budget they still want what they want but you know at the sharp end in physical production we are you know we're having to try to accommodate what we can and to, to make sure that people feel that they they can have some kind of balance in their life in an environment that is overtly unbalanced mm. physical production especially in drama is is not a balanced it's not a balanced way to live your life so I think that's still an area that needs to be tackled and you mentioned sexual harassment earlier so I wanted to ask you as well following the rise of of the me too movement in 2017 
how much has changed within the business in the intervening years? I think on the surface it has changed and you know there are moments in my teens and 20s that I can think of that I thought oh no that wasn't appropriate and I still feel uncomfortable about now. Um, I run a female-led company and a female-owned company and I thought we were the haven and the, the safe space for women but actually I had a shock must have been about four years ago where I found out about a case of um, sexual harassment within Woodcut even in a female-owned predominantly you know, two-thirds of the people who work at Woodcut are women. We are deeply feminist and overtly feminist as a company, but even in our safe space, even in our kind of beacon of womanhood, we still had an incident that I am ashamed of that you know happened within our walls. So I think for me, I naively thought things were much better, but actually I'm now not convinced they are. I think it, it's still about power. And if, if a person is in a power position and the, the person being abused is not, that, that is still an issue. That that hasn't changed. I think mm. what has changed is perhaps our, you know, a zero tolerance policy towards it. So as soon as it, I, you know, we found out about it, then the matter was dealt with immediately and quickly and forcefully. But it, it's not like it's gone away. I don't think, unfortunately. I don't think these things do go away. And I think, as you say, the the actual power structure remains, which um, facilitates it. I mean, I would say that probably bullying is more common in my experience than sexual harassment. Um, but both of them feed off the same thing, which is the imbalance of power and the fact that if you are a freelance and it's you know and now a very casualized industry, um, your industry reputation is everything you um, want to get the next job. If you complain about somebody, is that going to damage your reputation? All of those worries, I think, um, still pertain. So I, I think we can never be complacent about this. But I do think um, I think bullying. Um, I went back to the BBC after I'd left um, as a senior hearing manager to investigate bullying cases and equal pay claims. And um, it was it was an eye opener. Um, just, you know, people either unaware of their personal impact or not caring about their personal impact or think that that's a good leadership style to intimidate people. So I think we get that. I mean, I think sadly you get it from women as well as from men. It's not um, the preserve of, of, of one sex, but I think that is still around. And I, I, I think that there's more consciousness on the sexual harassment front. I think if we are aware of an incident that does get dealt with, you know, swiftly, and we've had our sort of consciousness raised around that. But I think there's an endemic power structure issues that will remain. Yeah, I mean, I think there are structures that have been put in place which help tackle that. For example, the intimacy coordinator role is a really valuable addition, I think. And it, it's sort of bizarre to think back to the times when we didn't have somebody on the set who was that intermediary for liaising, you know, between the script and the director and the actor as to what was required in a particularly intimate scene. And um, so I think I think we are adapting and we are recognising that we have to put process in place to counteract sexual inappropriateness as well as harassment. But yes, it, I don't think it's gone away. I, I mean, it's troubling to see the impact of Andrew Tate amongst younger boys, you know, and wondering, like, you know, what, what is the next generation of production crew and television personnel? How is that going to be Im impacted, I guess, by the way our culture and society is changing at the moment? So... Yeah, there's a there's a greater awareness and a greater awareness of what is and isn't inappropriate, but it doesn't necessarily mean people stop doing it. Yeah, I, th I think you're right, though, that there have been um, intimacy coordinators, uh, I think it's a big step forward. I think, uh, you know, the Independent Standards Authority um, as a, a place you know, run by Jen Smith that can really look into um, some of these instances and um, take an overview that doesn't mean that you have to go to, you know, the person who is bullying you in order to to tackle it that you can go to somebody independent neutral i think there's there are some steps forward that that have been made and i think it's been a very positive thing some people say to me oh do you think the whole kind of times up me too thing has gone too far and i always say no it's not gone nearly far enough because i think that uh, we need to actually see the the impact of these things on the ground but um i think there's a, quite a few steps in the right direction i do think you know as well what claire was saying was about the next generation and that worries me because we are becoming so polarized or they're becoming so polarized in their views and also we, you, know, you look abroad you, know, you look what's happened in texas 
with women's rights. I was out there for real screen and I took part in a, a, a protest outside the Capitol building for women's rights that was organised by a television producer on the ground. Um, it feels like there is an unwinding of the good that has been done at the moment. And I actually genuinely fear for my daughters and their future. Mm, mm. And what are they going to be dealing with in 10 or 20 years time that, you know, I've had a, a, a positive experience over the past 20, 30 years of uh, sort of an opening and an understanding and a kind of us all starting to really come to terms with our past but also work out a future but actually I feel as though those doors are starting to close a little bit now now is the time we really need to fight because of the polarizing views of people like Andrew Tate and because mm. of you know what's going on in America and not just America Iran Afghanistan problems yeah. aren't going away these problems are actually getting worse around the world yeah, and it, it feels, will start seeping in yeah it feels like there's a sort of backlash in process and um I think you're right I think it, it, it has to start seeping in in some way you know because that younger generation has to come through and uh, it, it, I'm not sure how we tackle that but I guess we just can't take anything for granted. No I think I, I used to think that progress was linear you know that it would always progress upwards and to the wards you know towards the light um, but now I think you know I've seen it go backwards as well mm. so you can't you know we have to keep fighting for our rights we can't ever just relax and think we've got them and that's great um, the, the battle needs to be renewed with each generation unfortunately. I mean, I think in terms of what we can do about it, I think there's kind of, I come at it from two sides. One is the structural side of the industry. You know, how do we tackle some of the things we've been talking about today um, that are actually structural, industrial issues in the industry? And then I also come at it as an executive coach, coaching a lot of women, because I think we need to empower the individuals as well within it and make sure that women, you know, speak up for their, their rights that do push for higher salaries that do push for promotion and put themselves forward for things because I think mm. sometimes I still see women who are um, you know underconfident have imposter syndrome uh, women are dangerously honest sometimes about the stuff that they don't know and that they don't feel confident about and and one of my issues is that you know the the there's a, a perception of risk um, around anyone who's not the kind of privileged white man standard demographic. If you depart from that, you start feeling this is a riskier thing, even though, you know, dozens of films are made by that demographic every day that bombs. So, so you know, there's it's not necessarily even the case evidentially. But I think that women need to understand how if they do undermine themselves, that that will be just taken as read that they can't do something rather than thinking, oh, isn't she charming? Isn't she lovely? And I bet she probably can do it really mm -hmm. Um, so I think I think we we need to empower the women as well to find their voices and speak up as well as changing the structure of the industry. I think that's absolutely right. And actually, in the last year, we've been doing quite a lot of soul searching and have started just simply saying it out loud. You know, we are a female led, female owned company with predominantly women working for us. And by just simply saying that, that gives us a power. And actually what it's done is not just it's inspired the women who work for us and, and the men as well. The men are absolutely on board with the mission, but it's also given us a bit a bit more kind of leeway in our program making. So we are now actively pitching, producing ideas that are female-centred, female-empowered, shouting about female success. And so there are two projects, and I can't talk about them yet, which is really frustrating, but there are two projects that we've just got away that are putting success of women at the heart of the, the programme. And that is amazing. And these are programmes that are just going to be fantastic to both produce and to watch. And hopefully somebody at home will be sitting on their sofa watching mm. this programme and being inspired by these amazing women whose stories we're about to tell. So by simply stating that we are women and this is what we do, it's kind of given us a real energy and edge and positivity to get that message out. It's so important because there is that thing, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, you're all in executive positions, acting as CEOs, creative directors and founders of your own companies too. 
Um, how do we get more women in the boardroom? Mm. Well, I guess, I mean, it feels like we're coming back to the same answer time and time again, which is role models and visible role models and empowering those younger women that, that we work with to feel like they have the capability to take the risk to set up their own businesses or, you know, to apply for jobs in senior management. I mean, I've worked inside and outside of the broadcaster arena in senior management and I set my own business up many years ago. And again, I think, you know, role models played a, a critical part in that decision for me. So I, I just think you can't do that enough to encourage people. Um, I guess within the broadcast sector, the broadcaster sector in senior management, I mean, Anne will have some great thoughts on this. Um, I, I think that there has to be structure in place to enable women to not think that that is a path that, that is close to them because of family commitments and you know ambitions for having a family or whatever and surely that has changed now you would like to think that has changed I don't know I make my own rules run my own business so um, so I'm not sure what that's like on the inside but I would have thought it's changed I think I think you're right that actually what you said there that by running your own company you can set your own rules I think that's really really important because um, you know I know women who've set up companies and who've been able therefore to make their own R's and and commitments, you know, around some family commitments. So I think it it in, by seizing the power, as it were, by having the power at the top of the company, then you can arrange things to suit yourself rather than fitting into somebody else's scheme. Um, mm. I think we need more women with that kind of self belief to feel that they see themselves in authority, that that mm. doesn't clash with their kind of inbuilt view of themselves. I think female conditioning. Uh, you know, where we tell little boys from, you know, the age of dot that, you know, they're they're brave and bold and little girls that they're pretty. Mm-hmm. It's it's really insidious. And I think the unconscious bias, it's in ourselves as well. So that's why I think coaching and mentoring has such an important part to play with each generation to be able to overcome some of those self-limiting beliefs that we all have inside, if we're honest, um, mm. and to be able to overcome them. And um, mm. it also needs in terms of setting up company, you know, private financiers and private equity to be able to um, not get bogged down in this sense that a woman is intrinsically riskier. There's no evidence Mm. for that. So we need to make sure that the sources of finance um, are enlightened as well. But I think the more women that do it, you know, you are a great example and that, you know, it's it's out there, it's visible. And I think by us all being visible, then it kind of encourages the others because it becomes normalised and Mm. not such a big deal after all. So I think that's why it's really important, you know, to talk on these platforms to to publicise what we do and and make sure that we're prominent in the industry as we should be. I think also, you know, we, we have to help ourselves by checking the language we use uh, when we communicate. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only woman who's written thousands of emails over the years saying, I'm just asking about this. Is it OK if I wonder if perhaps maybe question mark, you know, all the things that I know I've done in my communication in order to somehow soften yeah. the blow for the other person receiving the request that I'm making which is actually something I'm probably completely entitled to say and yet yeah. this inbuilt kind of desire to soften my language completely I, I I completely agree with that and um I've the other one that I've occasionally done after articulating a really kind of quite straightforward request is at the bottom put don't worry if not yeah yeah which <laughs> just completely undermines everything you've written above so uh, and I, I also remember when I got elected chair of BAFTA you know saying to somebody that I felt uh, really delighted and, you know, looking forward to it, but also daunted. And the thing was, I wasn't daunted. I really knew what I wanted to do in the role. I was looking forward to it. I was excited about it. But I felt the need to somehow reassure people I wasn't big headed by Mm. saying I was daunted. And that person then said to me, gosh, yes, it must be daunting for somebody like yourself to be doing a job like that. And I was outraged. I'm thinking, excuse me. And then I thought, hang on, Anne, you've done this to yourself because you have given that invitation to that person to say that. So I must never do that again. So I do think we you're absolutely right. We need to be careful of how we talk, you know, so we don't talk ourselves out of jobs. 
by pretending we're scared about things we're actually not scared about. Well, for sure. And I think emotional intelligence and soft skills are critical in our business because we do have to cajole and persuade and, you know, influence very often difficult personalities. And as women, we have this inbuilt natural ability to do that. But, you know, we shouldn't um, discount that in our own communication. So I'm very conscious now, much more conscious than I ever was when I'm writing an email to somebody asking them to do something which I, I need them to do and I'm entitled to ask them to do that I, I don't write I am just asking would it be okay if I mean I'm polite and I try to be courteous and I try to communicate with people in a way that you know is respectful but if I have to I need to use assertive language and I shouldn't feel apologetic about that and I think that's a big shift because for years I've sent apologetic emails for perfectly legitimate work uh, requests yeah you <laughs> me both absolutely and it is that somebody said to me once you know if you have if you think you've got authority you've got authority and if you think you don't have authority you don't have authority so you know the way one communicates authority I think is is really important yeah as someone a, a fellow um exec said to me that she got a tip from from another woman actually and it's interesting even that we talked about this you know because it means we've all encountered what it is like to have to be assertive in in a situation where maybe it's not going the way you want it to go maybe someone isn't doing what you need them to do and she said oh yeah someone this woman said to me some time ago that actually what I do is I listen to what the objection is and I say "Uh uh-huh okay yeah well thank you for that yeah I hear what you're saying but what I want to happen is this she said and sometimes you just have to say a really clear assertive sentence like that and then people understand you know as opposed to giving perhaps a mixed message about oh it would be all could we maybe do this or maybe we could do that and inadvertently creating more confusion and undermining yourself in the process yeah that it's negotiable when maybe in this occasion it just isn't (laughs) really interesting point that you've raised there i think we could all uh follow that advice i mean i mean i guess and you know to some extent we call that i mean i've been conscious of doing that actually in other in other contexts like you know working class person working at the bbc when i was younger you know like i didn't even apply for a job at the bbc until i was in my late 20s because i just assumed that someone like me would not get a job there and then when i did get a job there i realized that i was long before we ever called it code switching but i was code switching in order to fit in and speak in the way that i thought i had to speak in order to progress but then that is also another very valuable thing that my mother told me which was you know the best bit of advice she ever gave me was you can um you can do anything in this world if you know how to talk to everyone at every level in an organization and that's that's like the biggest skill you can have if you want to traverse complex political situations, I suppose. But yeah, the language we use, and I really admire young women or younger women these days who, in their communications, they, they make no apology for the role that they're in or the job that they have to do. That's their job. And I think that is a really good positive change. Yeah, I think picking up on the, on the point you made about fitting in, which I think um, I think particularly in the early stages of one's career, it's um, all about fitting in, isn't it? It's it's, it's kind of you're the kind of person who can work here. You mm. don't read as different from the rest. You're a chameleon, even especially in factual programs going out to get access from people of all types in society. You know, you have to be acceptable to everyone. And I think sometimes then there's a danger that when the buck gets passed to you to have your opinion and to speak out about what you want to make programs about, you know, when you get to that level of seniority, sometimes mm. you feel you've almost hollowed yourself out that you haven't got those opinions anymore because you've just fitted in completely and it's a really interesting thing particularly in diversity Mm. if we all have to fit into the prevailing culture then are we actually bringing diversity or are we just reinforcing the status quo so Mm. I think there's a whole kind of treatise one could do on that about to what extent you hang on to what's integral to yourself so that when the moment's right you can express it rather than just becoming part of the machine uh, that Mm. you've joined much more to be discussed (laughs) much more definitely um some final thoughts what would be the key bits of advice that you would give to women who aspire to follow in your footsteps in the world of tv don't be afraid stay true to yourself 
find other women who inspire you and who you can whose advice you can ask and go for it why not I agree with all of that and I would just add in terms of resilience as well as saying you know choose your partner your life partner with care um I would also say don't marry the job you know the job will probably never love you back as much as you love it so it's important to keep other things in your life and keep your sanity and have, I always say, diversify the sources of your self-esteem. You know, have hobbies, have relationships, have yeah. friends and family that, you know, give you emotional support that make you feel good about yourself. Don't put all your eggs in one basket with the job, because uh, I think that's the way to stress and difficulty. So, um, yeah, keeping a he healthy balance in life, I think, will mean that you don't sort of burn out, which is always a danger in this kind of a demanding mm. business. Kate Beale, Claire Mundell and Anne Morrison speaking with Carolina Kaminska. While Leah Thompson is best known as an actor and one of the stars of the iconic Back to the Future film trilogy, she spent the last decade racking up directing credits on shows such as Star Trek Picard, The Goldbergs and Stargirl. But right now, she's back in front of the camera, taking the lead in light-hearted Canadian procedural The Spencer Sisters, produced by Buffalo Gal Pictures and Entertainment One for CTV. Thompson spoke to Michael Picard about the series, her four decades of experience in film and TV as both an actor and a director, and the enduring impact of playing Marty McFly's mother in the movie franchise that recently reunited her with co-stars Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. Obviously, we know you for your, your screen work, but you've actually built up quite a, a number of directorial credits over the last few years. So that's obviously something you enjoy and are sort of paving the way into that kind of behind the camera work as well. Yeah, I really do enjoy directing. And um, yeah, I just directed a show called Will Trent. I don't know if you guys have that in England. And um, I did the Gold, two Goldbergs and uh, now I'm doing this. So my year's been really busy along with I did that right after I finished shooting the Spencer system which uh, was really fun. I've spent, it was so much fun to go kind of back to acting and play such a, a funny character and such a delightful show. I, uh, I had a great time. It kind of feels, kind of felt to me because I'm, I'm a big fan of British TV. You know how everybody has this, what's it called? Britbox, I think. I can't remember the name of this thing. Yeah, the streaming, yeah, Britbox, yeah. Yeah. My sister and I are just, you know, freaks for those shows or all the, all the different shows. So we watch it together and this show kind of felt like that to me. It has kind of wit and humor and mystery and an older lady. <laughs> Um, and so anyway, I really enjoyed acting again and doing a series again. It's yeah. fun to kind of be able to go back and forth. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've not, I guess you're mostly a film actress. Is that fair to say you've only done three or four sort of major lead series roles over your career? Is that, is that fair? So, and this is the latest one. So is that a big decision for you to sort of take the lead on a, on a series? Well, it's a, for, it's so, the line is so blurry now, you know, with streaming and everything. Thing. So it's kind of like you just kind of look for the quality or a character that you'd be happy playing for a few years for 100 episodes. And, uh, the, you know, they're not making that many movies. So most of the movies you make now are, are independent movies that kind of find a very small audience. So it's nice. It's nice to do streaming and TV because, you know, it's a longer job. It's a higher paying job and it's uh, a, a chance to be part of a family for a longer period of time like when you make a small movie it's, it's kind of like done one and done and uh it's nice to be with a group for a while and really settle in and become a family i like that a lot definitely and and, and i guess in the case of the spencer sisters it's a it's a literal family isn't it it's yourself and you're, you're playing mother and, and you have a daughter and, and you're together so it's it really is a family show it is and it's so delightful sometimes you just have this lucky chemistry with people um i had it on a show I did called Switched at Birth, uh, the two leaders 
leading actresses that were the daughters and the other actress that was the mother. We just loved each other. We all loved each other. And so it was it was really easy to act with them. It's no pressure, you know, no resentment, no divas. So I felt so happy to work with Stacey Farber. She was so great, so kind, so funny, such a trooper. And we instantly had this great connection and we spent a lot of time together off the set and on the set. And it was really easy to rehearse with her. It was easy to make mistakes with her. You know, you're pretty vulnerable when you're doing, when you're working this hard because sometimes your brain doesn't work. Sometimes you mess up. Um, sometimes you're tired or sad because of your life. So it's really nice to just have a partner in crime, so to speak, where you both trust each other and catch each other. And uh, she was, I just love her. I mean, and my daughters are kind of her age, a little bit younger than her. So also because I missed them, <laughs> I got to have a daughter uh, on set, which was really nice. <laughs> and and how, how does that work? Do you just turn up at set at day one and, and you meet Stacey for the first time? Or are you rehearsing and, and chemistry reading with a number of potential daughters until you meet Stacey and, and you kind of click together? Well, they were super duper smart. Um, I, I think they were really, she was really the only one they wanted. So uh, we just had one uh, chemistry read and it was delightful. And I sometimes when I, I hadn't read the material aloud because they had offered it to me. And so sometimes you wonder, will I be good or will I fit this part? So it was really nice doing the chemistry read with her because I was like, oh, yeah, I love this part. I, I can do this. This isn't a problem, which was a relief for yeah. sure. And, and so when you read it for the first time, you know, it's, I guess it's nice to be offered a part. But what was it about the script or the, the team that you thought, you know, actually, yeah, I'd like to do this. This, this sounds great. Well, I love being a, a sassy older woman with all the facets of what that is feisty, sassy, overly honest, all of those things are are funny to me. And it's, uh, it's not exactly how I am, but a little bit how I am. So it's just, it's just that I, I really enjoy the genre as well. I think people really love mysteries. So I think it could be very popular. So that's nice to know. And it's also not dark. Um, I think these times are so hard for so many people right now coming out of COVID and, you know, recession and all of the news, the war in Ukraine, earthquakes, you know, it's there's so much for us to all deal with right now. And I, I feel I feel like it's nice to put something in the world that's that you can watch and enjoy and laugh and get a little involved in and uh, forget about your troubles. Because I really didn't realize how important that was until I was locked in my house in COVID. I mean, it sounds stupid because I've spent my entire life in the entertainment business, but I finally realized why it's so important important to give people a place to kind of turn off their brain because the world's wacky and we we know so much about it all the time you know we're swiping through our phones and instagram stories and whatever tiktoks and it's just so much information it's lovely to just spend some time with some nice people you know yeah. on tv yeah no it is and it's um there's a lovely chemistry between your lovely rapport and, and from the start of it i've just been watching episode one and is that there's a lovely brightness and a pace to it that sort of really you know gets you in the mood so from the off which i really enjoyed but the relationship between you and and, uh, you know, you, you as Victoria and, and Stacey as, as Darby, it's, there's obviously a bit of friction there that we get to, to learn about before you're thrust together to start solving <laughs> crimes. So, I mean, how would you just describe the characters as we meet you in the series and, and perhaps how does that relationship move forward as you, you know, through episodes, you you form the, the Spencer sisters, you know, crime fighting duo? Well, they're estranged. The, the mother, it's not, doesn't think it's her fault, but <laughs> I mean, mother-daughter relationships are always very, very complicated they just are which is what's fun about the show too because everybody can relate to it it's the person you love the most but the person who installed your buttons and knows how to push them so and I know this about my own relationship with my mother and with my daughters so um Victoria Spencer when she lost her husband he died on the job he was a policeman and um so after he died Victoria in order to kind of support the family she began writing these novels and they miraculously became very popular. So she writes these kind of soapy crime novels and has become very rich. So she changed, you know, her, her in front of her daughter, who was about 15 at the 
the time and became this fabulous person. And so her daughter really resented that and then followed in her father's footsteps and became a much more practical person, a police officer, a much more, you know, not in the limelight kind of person. So the daughter really resents the mother for changing and for valuing her career over her daughter. So they've become estranged. But the daughter, for reasons you'll have to watch the pilot, quits her job and is forced to move back home, unfortunately, into her mother's mansion. And I'm happy about it, of course, because I've missed my daughter. So I kind of concoct and kind of, in some ways, trick her into opening this new detective agency called the Spencer Sisters, which of course she hates because of course we're not sisters. Of course, we don't look like sisters, but I'm so vain. I think we look like sisters. So that's the joke of that. We both kept saying, are they going to change the name? (laughs) Nope, (laughs) they never did. So it's a kind of an ongoing pun that people think we're sisters. And what's that like on set? Because obviously it looks, it's a lot of fun to watch and even the crimes are, you know, they're not grisly sort of uh, murders or anything, not for so far as I've seen anyway yet. Um, but I mean, is it is it a fun show to shoot? Do you enjoy kind of being on set after so many years? You still enjoy kind of turning up to work and, and running through the lines? Yes, this was really fun. It was really fun. I mean, of course it's hard work and uh, it's a lot to be... Uh, with the nails and the hair and the spanks and the lashes and the, oh, the tight clothes. And I forgot how, how much of a pain it is when people are poking at you all the time with the mic and the, oh, but it's really, it's a lovely group of people. And, you know, it's, it, I, I, I say it's like sometimes when you get a script, when you're an actor or a director on a series, it's kind of like a little Christmas present. You get it and you like open it up. And what's inside, you know, (laughs) what fun things do we get to do or say this week? And that's delightful. And I definitely felt like that about this, this show. And the arc of our characters, I think, is always going to be that we love each other, but we drive each other crazy, which is the kind of unanswerable question. Is it possible to be friends with your parents? Um, Is it possible to work with your mother? Is it possible to live with your parents and, 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 and have it be peaceful? And that's the fun kind of question we pose every week, along with a mystery every single week, which is always fun for people to try to outsmart us and figure it out before we get there. Over the last few years, maybe these kind of procedurals have, have become a bit unfashionable, haven't they? But they seem to now be having a bit of a renaissance, perhaps, and, and people enjoy just having an hour to watch a, watch a story and, and not have to worry about the next eight hours of, of uh, you know, serialized drama to, to consider. Yes, exactly. I mean, I love them. And I did I did a series of movies for the Hallmark Channel called The Jane Doe Mysteries many years ago, and they still play them all the time. They'll have like marathons of start at seven in the morning and finish at 11 at night with a, these movies. So I know that they're very popular with people. So I really enjoy that. Definitely. And, and when you're on set, I, I guess even if you're not explicitly a producer or an executive producer on a show like this, are you kind of offering advice or talking about your character? or suggesting things or you know how do you kind of like to collaborate with the directors or the producers on set you know do they look to you and think well you've done this before what do you think <laughs> they ought to darling <laughs> how dare they I've been around for 40 years um yeah it's always a collaborative experience and it's nice when you have a very 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 smart co-star like Stacy and a love lovely showrunners Alan who created the the project is so lovely and uh, you know during the uh, passion of the moment you know when you're shooting you'll when you're having to say the lines you, you get a different perspective like oh wait this doesn't make any sense can we like change it and you know it's always smart to be open to that you know I I am as an actor and a director and a producer because uh, you know we're all trying to get the same goal the best product possible for the audience so yeah I, I mean I don't try to push around the directors or anything like that but I will naturally know how to help them if we're running out of time with the blocking and uh, where I stand and where I say the lines it's just it's just second nature to me after directing 
thinking so much. And I've directed really big, big, big budget TV shows like Star Trek Picard. And I've done a lot of, you know, Stargirl, which was like a lot of superhero kind of stuff. And the Goldbergs, which is big comedy, our dramas. So I've done all kinds of different directing and movies, my own feature, The Year of Spectacular Men I made with my two daughters. So I have so much experience. And but I also try to be very respectful because we had really lovely directors and great producers and really fun scripts. So, you know, I don't want to do any more work than I have to. It's hard to star in a TV show. It's a lot of work. It's like 14 hours a day. No, it's a a lot. Yeah. But I mean, you've obviously kept your passion for the business over the 40 years, as you say. I mean, is is it, you know, you've never fallen out of love with any aspect of it. It's always been the thing you've loved. Yeah. I mean, you know, you love and hate it. (laughs) I mean, I haven't been able to, I haven't been in the same state as my husband for more than a couple of weeks since July 1st. So that's <laughs> a drag. Um, that's sad. Oh, no, no. I, I actually, he he's the producing director of Will Trent, this new okay. uh, procedural. And so I went and directed one of those. So I did get to spend a month with him in um, Atlanta. So that was nice, but I was working. Hmm. But yeah, there's some things that, you know, it's kind of like feast or famine. You either work a lot or don't work at all. So right now I'm working a lot, but it looks like it's winding down for a bit. But my do- our, my husband and I's daughter is getting married in June. So I'm very excited about that. And so what, I mean, what's, what's next for you then? Are you still looking for, you know, more acting roles? Are you happy behind the camera? Where are you kind of a bit of both? What's sort of next for you, do you think? Yeah, a bit of both. We're, um, we're hoping that they pick up the Spencer sisters and uh, show it around the world. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I think it's been picked up in America already. So um, I I hope to go back and do some more of those. And um, I have several different features that I'm working on in various states of pre-production. I'd like to direct a feature again. And, you know, the episodic work comes to me now because I have, I've done so much of it. But right now I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about going on holiday. I think I'm going to go to Scotland and do a Comic-Con and then turn that into a holiday with my husband. So I've never been to Scotland. I'm very excited. I'm excited to come to London. I'm going to go see the Back to the Future musical, which I've never seen. Oh, wow. That's surprising. You haven't been shown a video of it or anything like that at all. It's, it's, uh, well, that'd be great. They'll love you being there, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, they invited me for for like the opening and for Back to the Future Day. They kept inviting me, but um, I never could make it. So now that I'm going to be in London, I'm going to take Stacy, who weirdly had never seen Back to the Future. What? Um, <laughs> movie. Yeah, she'd never seen it. And oh. when, she waited until after we worked together to see it. And uh, so I'm going to take her to see Back to the Future, the musical, which I'm excited about. I think one of my friends is still in it. So that'll be fun, too. I mean, I wasn't going to bore you to death with more Back to the Future stuff. I'm sure you get that all the time. But I mean, as you're going to see the musical and it's obviously <laughs> still a big part of your life with Comic-Con and stuff. So, I mean, what what does it mean? to you sort of so many years after the fact it's obviously still a big thing that you get recognized for and asked about all the time so it's uh it's obviously still a big part of, of obviously your career and, and what you've done oh it's lovely you know in a lot of ways it's it's a gift that keeps on giving to me um it's it's lovely to have been part of someone's an important part of someone's life you know especially when i find out you know someone was like i had surgery when i was a kid and i watched that movie and it made me happy or i lost my parents and when I did or I watched the movie, you know, to be part of someone's past like that and to have been part of cheering them up is a great, great, it's an indescribable honor. And I feel really happy to be known for a part that was not only a great part, but it was a great movie. And, you know, some people are known for like Friday the 13th or whatever like that. And I feel that 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 was a really a movie that showcased my acting and my comedic skills. Um, and my range as an actress and it's just so lovely and I think this weekend I'm going to see Michael Fox and Tom Wilson and Chris Lloyd and through the years through going to comic cons we've all shared how remarkable it is that this is still something that is you know our legacy and uh I it's going to be hard to watch someone else play my part (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't remember many songs in the original movie either, so that must be uh, that'll be a bit different for you too. <laughs> yeah, you know what's weird about that movie is that the first, I think it's the first thirty-eight or forty minutes of the movie, there's no score. There's one Huey Lewis song, but no score. So when they do that thing where the orchestra plays and they show the movie, yeah, have you ever been to one of those? Uh, I have been to one of them. Yeah, not a Back to the Future one, but yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's incredible. Well, when they decided to do that, Alan Silvestri had to go back and write some more music because the orchestra was just sitting there like this for 40 minutes while <laughs> the movie played. So he actually, it was really interesting. He had to add score to the beginning. And I was I was interested. I think it made it better. But I also think many people say it's a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was yeah. good they didn't have score in it. Well, well, I would certainly agree with that. And and I noticed, I saw recently Tom Wilson actually has a, has a song that he uses in his stand-up shows to answer all the Back to the Future questions. So I want, do you have anything similar like that? Do you get, you know, aren't, you know, would you just have answers ready for the common questions that you get, perhaps? No, I'm not smart enough to remember something like that. No, I'm just happy to receive the joy that people have for the movie and to tell me. It's funny when I'm on a crew, especially with the um, masks, people don't know what you look like. And I, I'm I'm fairly unassuming. I've, I've always been kind of like I've wanted to fit into the woodwork. I'm not a fabulous person and I don't never wanted to live up to like acting like a star when I'm at home. So uh, the other day I was sitting on the set, it was a diner set in the back and we were shooting and shooting. And there was this lovely man who was a special effects guy. And he was just quoting back to the future and just like, that was so funny. And he remembered all the lines and he was doing my lines and everything. And I was like, that's so funny. Do you have any idea that I was in back to the future? And he was like, no. And I go, yeah, I was in back to the future. And he goes, oh my God, Lorraine McFly. And it was so sweet because I never, I never know. I never assume that someone would think that that has seen it or that they would like it. Or I just always assume that I can kind of have a switch that I can turn off and on that says famous, not famous, famous, not famous. And, um, and in a way I can, I can be very average and fit in, but that was very sweet. And there's so many fans and they, you know, on a set and a lot of times they don't know that I'm, I'm an actress. Even actors. I was I was directing all these actors and they were like, Wow, how do you know what to say? Like you seem I'm like I'm an actor too. And they're like, Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> I love that. That's strange. So, I mean, so I mean, would you say, do people know you from not just Back to the Future, obviously, but are there shows or films later on in your career that certain generations or certain groups of people will know you for better than Back to the Future? Yeah, the, the show Caroline in the City was very popular and also Switched at Birth I did, uh, which was very popular with a certain kind of pe- people. Um, I'm always surprised when I do Comic-Cons in Europe that there's so many Switched at Birth fans. I don't know where it played but it was very important to the deaf and hard of hearing community and we dealt with so many different issues that were really powerful that it had a big effect on some people and so a lot of times I meet people who are big fans of that show and it meant a lot to them and then every once in a while there'll be the odd one you know like I saw you in cabaret on Broadway and I'll be like yay (laughs) Uh, but my 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 body of work is is large. Of course, I've never had anything that ever compared to the success of Back to the Future. And I mostly have done TV and independent films since I had children, and so that's a long time. That's like thirty years. But um, a lot of people love Howard the Duck <laughs> and Red Dawn and Some Kind of Wonderful. I met my husband, and these, these are all eighties movies. I met my husband. He directed me in Some Kind of Wonderful. A lot of people love that movie. That movie really holds up. It's a John Hughes movie, and the soundtrack amazing and uh so i just feel so incredibly lucky to have been able to work this long in hollywood and uh keep my sanity (laughs) (laughs) leah thompson speaking with michael pickard that's all for this episode but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our c21 fm internet radio station where you'll find new interviews airing from monday the podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.